Settlement to Superpower, Episode 9, Into Bimini. Hello everybody and welcome back. I'm Abraham Ash, and this is from Settlement to Superpower. So, over the last 8 episodes, or to be more precise, over the past 15 episodes, when we include the introductory episodes about the English Reformation, we've gone through a great deal of background material. We discussed the English Reformation, the Portuguese exploration of the coast of Africa, Columbus, and the Spanish subjugation of the Caribbean islands and Mexico. Well, we've still got a lot of exciting background left to discuss, but we're finally ready to begin turning our attention towards the lands which would later become the United States. Or more particularly, we're about to turn our attention to the activities of the Spanish and Southeastern United States. Over the next several episodes, we're going to examine the Spanish efforts in Florida and the American Gulf Coast between the years 1513 and 1545. We're going to discuss Ponce de Leon and the multiple failed Spanish colonies and expeditions which followed him, Ailon, Narvaz, De Soto, and so on. When we're done with that, we're going to rewind over half a century to cover the exploratory efforts of the other European powers, from 1497 through 1545, in other words, from John Cabot through Jacques Cartier. Once we bring the other European nations up to date with Spain in the mid-16th century, we'll start to deal with the emerging mercantile and military rivalries in the Caribbean between the various nations of Europe, Spain, Portugal, France, and England. That'll bring us straight into the Elizabethan Wars and the exploits of such men as Sir Francis Drake in the New World, which will in turn bring us directly to the English colonization of Virginia. So that's our roadmap for the next, I don't know, 10-15 episodes. This overall structure of presentation seems to me to be the best way to fully detail the complex transatlantic situation which existed at the dawn of the 17th century, without unnecessarily confusing or overwhelming anybody. So there's our little projection into the future, but for now let's put aside our crystal balls and get back to the subject of today's episode, the beginnings of Spanish Florida. Of course, there's one man who will dominate the narrative of this episode and the next, Juan Ponce de Leon, the reputed discoverer of Florida. This episode is going to discuss Ponce de Leon's early life, or to be more precise, everything we don't know about his early life, the beginnings of his career in the New World, and his first voyage to Florida. We're also going to discuss, and quite naturally offer our limited judgment upon, two tremendous controversies still being disputed among historians. The first, whether Ponce de Leon was in fact the first European to visit the Floridian coast, and the second, whether or not he really hoped to find the fabled fountain of youth in the lands which he explored. Okay, so let's take a look at Juan Ponce de Leon's early life. The ambiguities begin right at the very start, as we don't really know in which year he was born. And we're not talking over here about a margin of a year or two, we're talking about a 14 year discrepancy between our sources. The official historian of the Casa de Contratación in Seville, Fernández de Oviedo, who knew Ponce de Leon personally and to whom we are indebted for virtually all of our knowledge of Ponce de Leon, places his year of birth at 1460. This is the year you'll find in virtually all of the older history books and a great deal of the newer ones as well. The problem with that, however, comes from the records of a royal inquest held on the 28th of September 1514. In it, Ponce de Leon swore that he was 40 years old, which would push his year of birth up to either 1473 or 1474, more likely the latter option. However, I still find it hard to just dismiss Oviedo's account of Ponce de Leon's age. I mean, he knew him. It's pretty hard to get the age of somebody you know wrong by a full 14 years. Then again, I also find it hard to believe that Ponce de Leon had the nerve to make up such a blatant and apparent lie under oath at a routine inquest. Either way, the contradiction among the sources uh, is pretty intractable, although I tend to believe the inquest's account of 1474 primarily because Ponce de Leon's career seems to more accurately fit into that account's time frame. Moreover, as we shall see later on in this episode, Oviedo was not a very big fan of Ponce de Leon, 
and it's quite possible, indeed it's actually quite likely, that he deliberately made Ponce de Leon older than he really was in order to make another lie of his more believable, that Ponce de Leon was searching for the fountain of youth. We also don't know exactly who Ponce de Leon's parents were. To be sure, we know who the family Ponce de Leon were, and we know them pretty well. They were a massive and prominent noble family in Castile for centuries, and they traced their pedigree back to the Union in the early 13th century between Pedro Ponce, a Leonese noble, and Aldonza Alfonso, an illegitimate daughter of King Alfonso IX of Leon. Thereafter, the Ponces would refer to themselves as the Ponces de Leon, and so our character's family was born. However, the Ponce de Leon family was sprawling, and they pretty much all have the same names, so we really can't trace our Ponce de Leon's place within his larger clan, nor do we know the names of his parents. Samuel Elliot Morrison, a historian whose scholarship I greatly respect, makes the claim that Ponce de Leon's parents were distant cousins, and that his mother was the daughter of the famous Marquis of Cadiz, Rodrigo Ponce de Leon, one of Spain's preeminent heroes of the Moorish Wars. Now, to the best of my knowledge, no other English history makes such a claim, and I am unable to find a copy, either in print or online, of the book which Morrison cites to support this assertion, Aurelio Tio's Nuevas Fuentes para la Historia de Puerto Rico. As much as I want to believe Morrison's account, it seems to be a bit of a stretch to me, as to the best of our knowledge, Ponce de Leon's parents were relatively poor, which would be rather unusual for the daughter of such a prominent Marquis and national hero. Moreover, as we shall see soon, Ponce de Leon spent the years of the final Moorish Wars as a page of a far less renowned Spanish noble of the related de Guzman family. If the famed Don Rodrigo was really his grandfather, then why didn't young Juan serve him? So, until I can actually see the evidence for this claim with my own eyes, I'm going to have to regretfully reject the premise, tantalizing though it may be. In any event, although we don't know exactly who his parents were and when exactly he was born, we do know where he was born, in the village of Santervas de Campos, in the province of Valladolid. Oviedo tells us that he was a page and later a squire to Don Pedro Núñez de Guzmán, commander of the Order of Calatrava. Under Guzmán, he had observed all that there was to be observed of the most modern methods of waging war, as well as internalized the restlessness and industry which would characterize the rest of his life. In 1492, however, the Reconquista had reached its culmination and, like so many of his compatriots, the young Juan found himself with little to do. The next ten years of his life remains a mystery as well. Oviedo tells us that Ponce de Leon sailed with Columbus on his second voyage in 1493, and it was then that he first laid eyes on the new world which would come to shape his destiny. Oviedo may or may not be right, but if Ponce de Leon did journey with Columbus, then it is near positive that he returned back home to Europe rather than stay in the new world. We simply don't hear anything of him in the New World whatsoever for a full decade, whereas in 10 years from now we're going to suddenly start hearing all about him all the time. So he finally resurfaces in 1502, with Nicolas de Avando's assumption of the office of Governor of Hispaniola, and we never lose sight of him from here on in. We've mentioned Ovando before. He was the cruel governor who Ferdinand had finally appointed over Hispaniola following Christopher Columbus's ouster and arrest in 1500. Diovando, more than anyone else, was responsible for the subsequent brutal enslavement and eradication of the native Taino, which in turn served as the prototype of the system which similarly destroyed the other Indians of the islands. As we've mentioned previously, along with Ovando came a veritable who's who of conquistadors. Besides for Ponce de Leon, Ovando also brought with him Francisco Pizarro, later conqueror of Peru, Bartolomé de las Casas, originally a conquistador and later the protector of the Indians, Lucas Vázquez de Ailón, the judge from Hispaniola, and of course Hernán Cortés, who only missed the boat on account of his unsavory accident. In any event, immediately upon arriving in Hispaniola, Ponce de Leon became a favorite of sorts of Nicolás de Ovando. And that's not a compliment. 
To be a favorite of Ovando's, you had to have been up to your neck in the most sordid business happening on the island. And make no mistake about it, Ponce de Leon was. Las Casas declares him, and again, Las Casas always has to be taken with a grain of salt, but even so, he declares him to be one of the most brutal of all the Spaniards on the island. And it was he whom Ovando sent to quell the so-called Native Rebellion of 1504. That campaign was the backdrop to the most horrible atrocities we've described in episode 3. And as commander, Ponce de Leon was not merely complicit in those atrocities. He presided over them. Now as I've said, we can take what Las Casas says with a grain of salt, but it is a telling detail that even in his later life, in his voyages to Florida, when Ponce de Leon encountered natives which usually were friendly to Spaniards, Still, somehow they always, always managed to fight him. So, it's apparent that he wasn't the kindest of all people towards the natives. In other words, he had a certain uh, treat him rough mentality, which led the natives to resist him wherever he went. In any event, following his pacification, which was the Spanish code word for the extermination of the eastern end of the island, Ovando was so grateful for Ponce de Leon's work that he granted him the lieutenancy of the conquered region. Ponce de Leon immediately set about enslaving his Indians under the newly implemented encomienda system. Over the next several years, Ponce de Leon made himself rich off the slave labor of his Indians, building mines and plantations to provide him with a steady flow of revenues. In 1506, Ponce de Leon began to hear reports of the riches of the island to the east of Hispaniola. The island then known to the natives as Boricuen, and which we now know as Puerto Rico, but which was then known to the Spaniards as San Juan Batista, St. John the Baptist. Puerto Rico had been technically discovered by Columbus, but it had not been colonized thus far by the Spaniards, and in truth they knew very little about it. Being as that was, as soon as Ponce de Leon heard about the gold to be found, he immediately decided to conquer the island for Spain and for his own pockets. Technically, however, it was still illegal for him to colonize Puerto Rico, as the rights to its colonization had already been granted to another adventurer the year before. But, as we know by now, such petty details rarely bothered this singular class of men. Ponce de Leon immediately set out a small and secretive reconnaissance expedition to scout out the island, so that he could lay the groundwork for his planned invasion. By 1507, the other adventurer's right had expired, and Ponce de Leon was petitioning the crown for permission to undertake the invasion of Puerto Rico. In 1508, that permission was formally granted to him by King Ferdinand, and Ponce de Leon sailed promptly for Puerto Rico with the blessings of his patron Nicolas de Ovando, at the head of a band of 50 men. Over the next several months, Ponce de Leon brutally and effectively subjugated the native population of Puerto Rico before returning back to Hispaniola with a large amount of extorted wealth. In recognition of his efforts, Ferdinand soon declared Ponce de Leon governor and captain general, or adelantado, of Puerto Rico. In Puerto Rico, as in Hispaniola, Ponce de Leon parceled out the Indian population to his cronies as the spoils of war, of course reserving the largest encomienda for himself. For a while, things seemed pretty good for Ponce de Leon, and chances are that if things had stayed that good for him, Ponce de Leon would have never sailed for Florida, and he probably would have been about as famous as Nicolas de Ovando is today. In other words, not at all. But politics was about to catch up with him and upend his entire career. The politics really centered around the rivalry between the Columbus family and, well, everybody else. As we've mentioned previously, when Ferdinand and Isabella agreed to Columbus's proposition, Columbus drove a hard bargain. In a series of contractual agreements known as the Capitulations of Santa Fe, the Catholic monarchs agreed that, should Columbus be successful, he would be governor and viceroy for life over all territories he would discover, and would be granted 10% of all gold, gems, or trade goods which would subsequently come from those domains. Moreover, these privileges would transfer upon his demise to his heirs for all posterity. Of course, the monarchs made these capitulations rather lightly, as they weren't really all that optimistic that Columbus was going to succeed in his design. But succeed he did, and very soon Ferdinand and Isabella bitterly regretted making such a generous concession to Columbus. 
domestic enemies of Columbus, such as Bishop Fonseca, who saw Columbus as a rival for control over the New World, seized the opportunity of the monarch's regrets to agitate against the so-called independence of this jumped-up Genoese sailor, and to demand that he be taken down a peg or two. In addition, the Spanish colonists over in Hispaniola were growing more and more dissatisfied with Columbus and his two brothers' administration. Columbus, who was governing Hispaniola with the help of his brothers Diego and Bartolomeu, was interested in ruling over a populous and orderly society which would be profitable both to him and Spain. However, the Spaniards on Hispaniola had a very different agenda in mind than their lawlessness and depredations, coupled with their absolute refusal to do any sort of work other than gold prospecting, drove Columbus and his brothers to the end of their tethers. As far as the colonists were concerned, they were here in the New World for no reason other than their desire for gold, and here were these foreign fools lording over them and telling them when and how they could seek their fortunes. Matters soon reached a boiling point and a number of the colonists rose up in open rebellion against the rule of the Columbuses. Upon hearing about the rebellion, the monarchs dispatched a special commissioner to Hispaniola, a man by the name of Francisco de Bobadillo. Bobadillo was charged with investigating the Columbuses and their administration, and was granted sweeping authority to make just about any decision in the name of the monarchs. Bobadillo arrived in Hispaniola in the summer of 1500 and, finding the rebellion already resolved and several Spaniards hanging from the gallows, Bobadillo, without even hearing Columbus's side of the story, immediately took control of both the fort and government, threw Diego Columbus into prison, and declared an end to the Columbus's policy of restricting when and where gold could be collected. Shortly thereafter, Christopher himself and his brother Bartholomew turned themselves in as well, and they too were clapped in irons and shipped back to Spain, stripped of both their titles and their assets. Upon their return to Spain, the brothers were kept in fetters for a full six weeks before the monarchs deigned to grant them an audience. Columbus and his brothers made their way to the royal court in Granada, where they implored the monarchs to remember all the services which they had done for them, and the promises which they had made. The monarchs, perhaps moved by a guilty conscience, spoke to Columbus kindly and assured him that he would soon be restored to office and equitably recompensed for all that he had gone through. However, that was not to be. After eight months of waiting around, Columbus learned of the terrible news. He was not going to be restored to his position in the New World. Instead, Nicolas de Ovando was formally appointed the governor of Hispaniola in September of 1501. Columbus was still allowed to keep his meaningless title of Admiral of the Ocean Sea, but his political career was over. This final betrayal by the monarchs he had given so much to was the final straw for Columbus. Although he continued to fight for his rights over the next several years, he had, just like Cortes would 40 years later, lost his will to go on. On the 20th of May 1506, the unhappy admiral breathed his last, surrounded by family and his few remaining friends. Just the day before he had written his will, designating his son Diego, now 26 years old, as the heir of all his claims and titles. The relatively young Diego Columbus, who, just to make things more interesting, was not called by the Latinized surname Columbus, but rather by the Hispanicized name Colon, brought new energy to the fight over his father's revoked titles. By 1508, he had gotten the Cortes of Castile to rule, despite royal opposition, that the governorate of Hispaniola was his by right, thus returning Hispaniola to the Columbus family and ousting Diovando from his position. So now, the ouster of Diovando was bad news for his protege Ponce de Leon. Although the Cortes of Castile had technically ruled that Colon had no right to revoke the governorship of Puerto Rico from Ponce de Leon, that didn't stop Diego Colon from doing everything in his power to get him out. Ponce de Leon was, after all, an ally of his enemies, and Colon wanted to remove that whole problematic bunch from positions of power. But still, the Cortes had instructed that Ponce de Leon should retain the governorship of Puerto Rico, and Colon was powerless to defy them. Instead, what Colon chose to do was to leave Ponce de Leon as the nominal governor of the island, 
But to offset that, he effectively gutted the power of the government by revoking many of its prerogatives and reassigning them to new offices he had created, which he then filled with Columbus loyalists. The king overruled this decision in 1510, and Ponce de Leon promptly had the Cologne loyalists arrested and sent back to Spain. Now this prompted Cologne to sue the king again in the Cortes for infringing on his rights, which he insisted gave him full authority over all colonial appointments. Back in Puerto Rico, Ponce de Leon continued to resist Cologne's authority until, following a new Cortes decision in Castile which established Cologne's full authority in the Indies, he was forced to throw in the towel and resign, thus paving the way for the Cologne loyalists to return from Spain and formally assume their offices. Ponce de Leon was removed from the governorate, which was handed to one of Cologne's favorites. So now, through no fault of his own, Ponce de Leon was out of a job. He was still extremely wealthy as he had managed to keep the great bulk of his encomiendas in Hispaniola and Jamaica, but even so, he chafed at the limitations now placed on his acquisition of wealth. He wanted power, he wanted gold, and so he hit upon the idea of discovering a new island, which he had no doubt he would find if he sailed around the Caribbean a bit, which he would be able to govern and exploit. In particular, he wished to find a large northern island which he had been hearing rumors about, an island called Bimini. The natives said that Bimini was a land of fabulous riches, and uh, we're going to discuss soon whether they said that Bimini also had a fountain of youth. Under the Cortes' decision, Cologne's rights extended only to those lands actually discovered by the Columbuses, not the New World in its entirety. Thus, if Ponce de Leon was able to discover a new island, he would at last be able to govern it free of the lawsuits of Diego Colon. King Ferdinand, who was understandably quite sympathetic to Ponce de Leon, and, as I'm sure you can imagine, quite annoyed with Colon, assented to Ponce de Leon's plans. Colon's uncle, Bartholomew Columbus, brother of the explorer, also petitioned the king for the rights to explore and settle Bimini, but there was no way the king was giving anything more to a Columbus. The family was causing more than enough trouble as things stood, so you can forget about giving them even more claims. On February 23, 1512, the king formally granted Ponce de Leon exclusive rights to explore Bimini for a period of three years. Should he succeed in finding Bimini, he would be granted the governorate of the island for life and would receive for a period of 12 years a royalty of 10% from all gold, gems, and trade goods derived from that island. Ponce de Leon was expected to finance the initial voyage, but if he was to discover Bimini and require fortifications to be built on the island, the funds for those fortifications and their garrisons would come from the royal treasury. These were fairly generous terms, and Ponce de Leon grabbed the opportunity with both hands, especially after the king darkly insinuated to him that surely Bartholomew Columbus would settle for lesser terms. As a matter of fact, Columbus had already offered the king lower terms, but as we've mentioned previously, there was no chance in the world that the king would accept an offer from a Columbus. The crafty Ferdinand was merely using the specter of Columbus to drive down Ponce de Leon's price. The Aragonese have always been good at business and negotiating. In any event, Ponce de Leon got his charter signed by the king and countersigned by Bishop Fonseca. So at this point in our narrative, right before Ponce de Leon's ostensible discovery of Florida, I think it's quite important for us to digress and go through two important and very contentious debates surrounding this first voyage of Ponce de Leon's. First of all, did anyone discover Florida before him? And secondly, what was his motive in seeking the island of Bimini? So let's get into the first question, whether or not Ponce de Leon was in fact the discoverer of Florida. Did any other Europeans, Europeans in the know, know anything about Florida before it was officially discovered? Now, obviously, the official story is that he was the discoverer of Florida and nobody knew about it before. After all, that's why we refer to Ponce de Leon as the discoverer of Florida. However, there is a significant faction, if I may call it that, among historians, who maintain that Ponce de Leon was not in fact the discoverer of Florida. Their primary piece of evidence to support this contention is a beautifully rendered world map from 1502 
known to us as the Cantino map. The Cantino map is named after Alberto Cantino, an Italian spy sent to Portugal by the Duke of Ferrara. The Duke of Ferrara, Ercole d'Este, was a Renaissance man through and through, a patron of the arts, a lover of fine music, theatre and architecture, and above all, a seeker of worldly knowledge. He was also, quite curiously, an admirer of Girolamo Savonarola, but I digress. Anyways, the Duke of Ferrara had heard about the remarkable discoveries of Spain and Portugal, but, like the rest of Europe, he really knew none of the details. The Spanish and Portuguese were being quite silent about their exploits, and nothing but rumours were being spread around. The inquisitive Ferrara, however, wanted to know everything, and so he spent the spy we've mentioned previously, Alberto Cantino, over to Lisbon to see what information he could obtain. Cantino was good at his job, and before long, as we've said, in 1502, he was able to send his employer a large, beautiful, colored world map, measuring some 4 by 8 feet. The map showed the most up-to-date discoveries, including the Indies, the coast of Brazil, Africa, the Malabar coast, and Newfoundland. There are many interesting quirks and details about this map, and I recommend you all look it up. It's got a line to represent the division of the Treaty of Tordesillas, it has some really cool illustrations in Africa, and of course the inscriptions are simply marvelous. In Africa, for example, we have inscriptions such as, This is the land of King Organo, whose king is very noble and very rich, and uh, Land of the King of Nubia, the king of which is continuously making war on Prester John, and is a moor and a great enemy of Christians. It's all quite fascinating, really. The truth is, I would really put up a nice picture of it on our WordPress site, but unfortunately, I am ashamed to admit that I have still not yet learned how to upload pictures nicely. In any event, you can easily find it online. Just Google it, you'll find it. But anyways, there's a reason why I'm introducing you to the Cantino map. In the Indies, right to the northwest of Cuba, is a large and mysterious coastline. This coastline, say the revisionists, is the coast of Florida, discovered by some mystery explorer over 10 years before Ponce de Leon's expedition. Now, besides for the existence of a cluster of small islands at its southern tip, which would seem to represent the Florida Keys, the map bears virtually no resemblance to the Floridian coast whatsoever. For example, although the eastern coast of Florida is relatively straight and smooth, the mystery coast on the Cantino map, while more or less straight, is a welter of bays and inlets. The problem, however, is that while the map doesn't really look like Florida, it doesn't really look like anything else either. There are some who suggest that perhaps the coastline represents the northern coast of Yucatan, which it does actually look similar to, but then we A need to figure out why on earth Yucatan is sideways and in the wrong place, and B we still need to interpolate a mysterious explorer who discovered Yucatan at least a decade and a half before such a discovery is actually recorded. Then you have others who say that the coastline is supposed to represent the coast of Asia or Cuba. But the problem with that is that both the Asian and Cuban coasts are delineated elsewhere on the map, so it can't be them. Cartographically speaking, there's really no good solution to the problem of the Cantino map and somehow contorting that coastline into Florida is as ineffectual an answer as any other we've mentioned. And then we have the problem of who exactly was this mysterious discoverer. We can immediately discount those who tried to tell us that these lands were discovered in 1497 by uh, expeditions chronicled by Amerigo Vespucci or Sebastian Cabot. We're going to discuss those two in future episodes, but suffice it to say over here that those two men were such liars you couldn't believe them if they told you what time of day it was, let alone their claims of making dramatic and heroic voyages of discovery long before anyone else did. However, the truth is that it's not so hard to believe that a secret expedition explored the coast of Florida around the year 1500. After all, remember that the Cantino map was created in Portugal. According to the Treaty of Tordesillas, Portugal was locked out of the Caribbean, that was squarely in the Castilian zone. We also know that, while Portugal never engaged in a real rivalry with the Spanish over trade in the Caribbean, they still did subtly try to illegally trade and explore the Caribbean. We're going to have a whole episode on that in the future, so 
It's quite possible that the Portuguese, on one of their covered expeditions in Spanish waters, actually ranged the coast of Florida. That would also explain why the discovery was kept a secret, in other words, why we wouldn't know about it if not for the Cantino map. Portugal would obviously try to keep the discovery a secret in order to prevent a diplomatic row with Spain over its violation of Tordesillas. Of course, we still have to remember that this possible discovery is backed up only by the evidence from the Cantino map, and that evidence is rather dubious. In summary, what I would say about this entire controversy is that while I definitely wouldn't rule out the possibility that Portugal got to Florida first, that thesis is still lacking decisive proof. It could be either way, and until we have further proof, I, for one, will err on the side of caution and the accepted historiography. So as far as this podcast is concerned, Ponce de Leon discovered Florida, although with the added caveat that there is some reason to suspect otherwise. The next great historical controversy surrounding Ponce de Leon's discovery of Florida is about what his goal was. I have presented those goals as I believe they were. Ponce de Leon simply wished to regain what he had lost in his ouster from the government of Puerto Rico. However, this is not the account you'll find in many, or probably even most, of the history books. In most of the books, you're going to find that Ponce de Leon was motivated by romantic Indian legends, speaking of the fabulous land of Bimini, and of a magical fountain which was said to be there which had the marvelous capacity to restore a man to his youth. Now, we know that he was definitely searching for the island of Bimini, but this belief that Ponce de Leon was searching for the fountain of youth has very thoroughly permeated into the public consciousness without justification, in a large part due to Washington Irving's pseudo-history, and this claim has been repeated many times since by some very respectable historians. As I've said, the problem is, the whole thing is complete bunk. For starters, we should point out that in Ponce de Leon's royal grant, there's not a single word mentioned of this fountain. If Ponce de Leon was searching for something so remarkable, then surely it would have been mentioned, much as the Portuguese in Africa and Prince Henry the Navigator constantly spoke of their desire to find the kingdom of Prester John. And yet, not only did Ponce de Leon and the king not mention it, but even the most prominent Spanish chronicler of the time, Peter Martyr, who interviewed Ponce de Leon personally, mentions nothing of his desire to seek out the fountain. Now that's not to say that nobody heard of the legend of a fountain of youth. That legend was around. Such a fountain had been said to exist in the far reaches of Asia already from the times of Herodotus. The legend was repeated in many different forms throughout the Middle Ages, and any literate Renaissance man would have heard something of the legend. It was portrayed in books, in art, and poetry. Basically, everyone had heard of it. It was like the kingdom of Prester John. However, and this is a big however, nobody in Europe ever attached these legends to the New World until Peter Martyr did so in 1516, three years after Ponce de Leon's voyage. And even then, Peter Martyr did not state that this fountain was on an island called Bimini, rather on an island he called Boinca. And rather than placing this island's location in the Florida Bahamas region, he puts it somewhere about a thousand miles north of Hispaniola, and to make things even more muddled, the context in which this report appears is in an account of a voyage to Honduras in the opposite direction. Even more tellingly, as we've mentioned earlier, Martyr, who, who had clearly heard the legends of the fountain in some form or another, does not imply anywhere that this had anything to do with Ponce de Leon's voyage. Of course, as we've said, that doesn't mean that Ponce de Leon wasn't thinking at all of Indian legends. The whole existence of a large island called Bimini was itself a local Indian legend, which was probably based on the real-life lands of the Mayans in Yucatan. However, and this can't be stressed enough, while Bimini was reported to be fabulously wealthy and prosperous, the natives said nothing about this miraculous fountain. The fusion of the Eurasian legends of the Fountain of Youth and the Taino legends of wealthy Bimini and by extension, the interpolation of this romantic quest into Ponce de Leon's expedition, was the invention of later chroniclers. So where did we get this information that Ponce de Leon was searching for the Fountain of Youth? Who is the first one to explicitly connect the two legends of Bimini and the Fountain? The answer to that is a man we've mentioned earlier in this episode. 
Francisco de Oviedo, official historian of the Casa de Contratación. In 1535, some 14 years after Ponce de Leon's death, Oviedo published his account of Ponce de Leon's voyage. In that account, he connects the legend of the Fountain of Youth with Ponce de Leon for the first time, adding contemptuously that Ponce de Leon wasted much time in searching for this fountain, which he hoped would restore his virility. Now, never mind that in the years during which he was supposedly looking to restore his virility, he sired four children. Moreover, as we have demonstrated earlier, Ponce de Leon, who was born, as we said, in 1474, would have been 39 at the time of this voyage, hardly at an age which brings on impotence. As we insinuated back in the beginning of the episode, it is quite likely that Oviedo simply made up the year of Ponce de Leon's birth pushing it back 14 years in order to add a false credence to the hit job he was doing on Ponce de Leon's reputation. His account just doesn't add up. Why introduce a motive which Ponce de Leon has no need for and nobody mentions when his political and economic motives are crystal clear and virtually staring you in the face? In summary, all of the historians who mention the Fountain of Youth with regards to Ponce de Leon are basing off of Oviedo's account. But Oviedo's account suffers from a clear animus held by the author towards Ponce de Leon. How else to explain his mocking comment about Ponce de Leon trying to restore his manly powers? That clearly wasn't true, right? After all, it's hard to have four kids and be 39 and have a rather active life when your virility is gone. Oh, and isn't it convenient that the same Oviedo of all people is the source for the erroneous birthday for Ponce de Leon, which makes him 14 years older than he really was? The whole thing smacks to me of a posthumous character assassination on Oviedo's part. And this fountain isn't mentioned anywhere by Ponce de Leon or the king. So in this historical dispute, I'm going to take the side of the revisionists and claim that Ponce de Leon never had any intention to find the fountain of youth. Rather, he hoped to find a wealthy land of Bimini which was spoken of by the natives. Anyways, these historical kerfuffles aside, let's get back to Ponce de Leon, who had just received from the king authority to explore and colonize the island of Bimini. Ponce de Leon moved quickly, returning to Hispaniola immediately and getting to work outfitting an expedition. By the beginning of January 1513, he was ready to move with three ships and somewhere about 200 men. In truth, it was a good thing that Ponce de Leon moved quickly because the king, who was always rather stingy, felt that Ponce de Leon was driving too hard of a bargain for him, and so the king instructed his officials in Hispaniola to cancel Ponce de Leon's charter and replace him with someone less interested in profit. But alas for the king, Ponce de Leon was fully prepared and on the move. On the 3rd of March 1513, Ponce de Leon sailed from Puerto Rico with his three ships, headed in a northwesterly direction. Now the records we have of the expedition's course are sketchy and incomplete, and as in many of the Spanish accounts of their discoveries in the Caribbean, the latitudes were off by a degree or two. This of course compounded with the fact that we no longer have the original log and need to rely on an incomplete transcription from 1601, causes a great deal of uncertainty regarding the exact locations of his landings, and where there's historical uncertainty the void is filled by, you guessed it, more controversy. In case you haven't noticed by now, everything about Ponce de Leon and his expedition is a controversy. That's just the way it is. Now we're not really going to get into these particular disputes as the details can get very technical, but suffice it to say that we're going to give the locations which I think are most accurate without getting involved in the disputes surrounding them. In any event, following stops for water at several of the Bahamas, Ponce de Leon made landfall on the American mainland on the 2nd of April 1513. Upon landing, Ponce de Leon was struck by the profusion of flora, which was particularly beautiful during springtime. Woodbury Lowry, in his Spanish settlements within the present limits of the United States, gives a lyrical description of what Ponce would have seen, based on an 18th century account of Florida's beauty at that time of year. Beyond the shallowing green waters, the waves rolled their white crests of foam up the long, hard, shell-paved beaches which formed a silver bar between the sea and the dense green verdure of the islands along which he was coasting. 
A thick forest of grey cypress, tulip, ash, and magnolia, with gnarled live oak that reminded the strangers of the olive groves of their native land, clad the low sand dunes and marshes of the islands and cut the horizon with its dark canopy, above which floated the plumes of towering palm groves and the light tufts of the broom pine. Between the islands the eye rested upon the glistening surface of sluggish lagoons, with brilliant borders of rush and sedge extending up to the very edge of the mysterious forest on the mainland. It was the season of flowers. The perfumed breath of the white lily was wafted out to them from its humid haunts in the shady nooks of the islands. The fragrance of blooming orange groves, of sweet bays of yellow jasmine, and of the sweet azalea filled the air. Upon the dark foliage, like flights of gaudy butterflies, lay spread masses of blue, crimson, and white, the blue flowers and coral berries of the Lyceum salsum, the Andromeda and the Azalea. Along the inner shore, between the water's edge and the forest, the royal palmetto, crested with pyramids of silver-white blossom, thrust forth its sword-shaped leaves. Loons and Spanish curlews whirled overhead. In the woods strutted the wild turkey, saluting the dawn with noisy call from his perch, on the lofty cypress or the magnolia, and many-hued hummingbirds fluttered from flower to flower. End quote. In a nod to his new discovery's verdant opulence, as well as to the fact that he made landfall during the season of Pascua Florida, or Easter, the festival of flowers, Ponce de Leon named this new land, which he presumed to be an island, Florida. As we've mentioned earlier, there's a fairly wide range of estimates for the location of Ponce de Leon's first landfall, ranging anywhere from north of St. Augustine to Melbourne Beach, some 150 miles to the south. Somewhere around St. Augustine does seem to be the most likely location, so that's the one we're going to go with. Ponce de Leon didn't see any sign of human habitation, but he nonetheless unfurled his banner and planted it in the earth calling out loudly that he hereby took possession of this land in the name of the King of Spain. From there, Ponce de Leon turned southward, sailing down the Floridian coast. On April 20th, he sighted, for the first time, a cluster of Indian huts. Again, our accounts of what exactly the Spanish did are rather sketchy, but Ponce de Leon doesn't seem to have made an effort to go ashore and communicate with the natives. Another pointer towards our earlier assertion that he was not in fact searching for the Fountain of Youth. After anchoring there for the night, a prudent decision for a ship in shallow, treacherous, and unfamiliar waters, they continued moving southward. However, that day, April 21st, Ponce de Leon encountered such a powerful current that, notwithstanding the fact that they had a most favorable wind, their ships were forced backwards. They dropped anchor immediately, and though the cable line strained mightily, they held, with the exception of the lightest ship, which was swept away by the current and out of sight for several days. What Ponce de Leon had encountered was a discovery which was arguably just as important as his discovery of Florida, the powerful Gulf Stream. To understand how the Gulf Stream works, as well as why its discovery was so important to the emerging Atlantic world, we would do well to first understand the system of trade winds and westerlies and how they mattered in the age of sail. Basically, there's a fixed pattern to the way winds at sea blow. In the more tropical latitudes, the winds blow steadily easterly, in other words, from the east to the west, and that's confusing, easterly means from the east to the west, not to the east. While further to the north and the south, the winds are westerlies, or blowing from the west eastwards. The easterly winds, those winds in the tropics which blew from the east westwards, were called trade winds, while the westerly winds to their north and south were called westerlies. Meanwhile, the easterly trade winds would blow northeasterly to the north of the equator and southeasterly to the south of the equator, with a convergence of the two winds at the equator, while the westerlies as well would follow a similar pattern. They'd blow northwesterly to the north of the easterlies and southwesterly to the south of the easterlies. This meant that if you were the pilot of a ship and you wanted to travel from Europe to America, you would first sail down to the northwestern coast of Africa, where you would then catch the easterly trade wind to speed you faster across the ocean. 
If, on the other hand, you were seeking to pilot a ship from America to Europe, you would try to take advantage of the westerlies of the North Atlantic to get to Europe quicker. Now, it took a bit of Atlantic exploration for the European mariners to actually discover the trade wind system and learn how to manipulate it. The Portuguese first discovered the trade winds in a very limited sense during the days of Prince Henry the Navigator. A few of his ships were blown of course during a storm when they noticed the Volta do Mar, or Turn of the Sea, which was the name they gave to the shift in wind direction. From then on, the Portuguese would take the Volta do Mar on their return from Africa, swinging out in the, into the Atlantic to catch the trade wind back to Portugal. As their explorers moved farther and farther southward, they came to be more familiar with the shifts in trade winds, and Vasco da Gama would use them to great effect on his voyage to India. As Columbus sailed to the New World, he discovered what many Europeans had already suspected, that the trade winds held steady across the entire Atlantic Ocean. However, the Spanish hadn't quite figured out how to get north from the Caribbean islands to the westerlies which would convey them speedily back to Spain. This is where the Gulf Stream, Ponce de Leon's inadvertent discovery, comes into play. Basically, the trade winds which blew from the coast of Africa westward would cause a sea current, which terminated on the coast of Mexico. At the coast of Mexico, the current would turn northwards, flowing into the Atlantic seaboard. At the southern tip of Florida, however, the current, which was usually about 100 miles wide, would get bottlenecked between the Bahamas and the Floridian coast, creating the Gulf Stream, that extraordinarily rapid current which Ponce de Leon now encountered. Ponce de Leon himself didn't press forward with the investigation of his discovery, but several years later his pilot, Anton de Alaminos, would travel the Gulf Stream, which he found had sufficient force to propel him to the westerlies before it dissipated in the Atlantic. The discovery of the Gulf Stream was momentous, in that it fixed the standard route by which all European ships would travel to and from the New World. They would first sail down to the Canary Islands, where they would stop for water, before catching the trade winds westward. On the way home, they would loop northwards by way of the Gulf Stream, which would convey them to the westerlies, with which they would then travel to the Azores or directly back to Europe. This was simply the route which was most economical and made sense. However, there was a downside to everyone taking the same route, and that was that pirates and privateers now had an easy hunting ground, a narrow strait through which they knew all sea traffic would need to travel. This solidification of the transatlantic trade route shaped the entire story of the next two centuries of European rivalry and privateering in the Caribbean. Pursuant to that, it also followed that the southeastern coast of what is now the United States suddenly became an extremely strategic area. Before this, the Spanish cared about one thing and one thing only with regards to where they colonized. Was there gold? Now, however, Florida became the flank of all outward shipping from the Caribbean, and the Spanish would soon realize the importance of maintaining some sort of presence there. The French and English as well would get similar ideas in their heads, and it was from this European competition to control the choke point of American trade that the Jamestown colony would ultimately be born. I would also like to add, simply as an additional tangential point, that the tradewinds were called tradewinds not because they facilitated trade or any similar sort of reason. That usage of the word trade is a more modern one, whereas the tradewinds were called what they were on account of the old English meaning of the phrase to blow trade which meant that a wind blew steadily and consistently. And anyways, trade winds and westerlies and gulf currents aside, let's get back to the sketchy details of the remainder of Ponce de Leon's expedition. He sailed southwards, passing Key Biscayne and the site of modern Miami, going ashore wherever he discovered signs of habitation, to inquire about treasure. Usually the natives were timid retreating to the interior, but on one occasion a scuffle broke out, and a Spaniard was killed. Around the 20th of May, Ponce de Leon rounded the Florida Keys and on the 23rd he landed on the western coast of Florida, somewhere between Tampa Bay and Charlotte Harbor, probably the latter. Over here he encountered the warlike Calusa Indians, of whom we shall have more to say next episode. The Calusa swarmed over the Spanish boats and tried to steal their rowboats, 
but the Spanish succeeded in beating them off. They also reunited with their ship which had been pulled away by the Gulf Stream current. Interestingly, while he was here, Ponce de Leon encountered an Indian who spoke Spanish, and who joined him as an interpreter. Some people have used this incident as proof that Ponce de Leon was not in fact the discoverer of Florida and that many Spaniards were there before him. But of course this is hogwash. The Spanish had been raiding the Bahamas for slaves for years, and without a doubt many of those Indians fled across the water to Florida, just as Hathaway, the leader of the Hispaniolan natives who we mentioned back in episode 3, escaped via canoe from Hispaniola to Cuba. This would explain the presence of this solitary Spanish speaker. Following this, the Spanish turned around to make for home. Ponce de Leon sent one of his ships to continue looking for Bimini among the Bahamas, while he returned back to Puerto Rico, arriving on the 8th of October 1513. This, by the way, is further reinforcement to our assertion that to Ponce de Leon, the Bimini legend had not yet been conflated with that of the Fountain of Youth. If he was really searching for something as glorious as the Fountain of Youth, do you really think he would have delegated the search to someone else, rather than take it up himself? In any event, this ship that he sent out returned to Puerto Rico in February 1514 with the news that they had found Bimini, except that it contained no gold. What they found was a large island in the Bahama group, which had no gold. But gold or no gold, Ponce de Leon was elated with his success, and he returned to Spain immediately to report his discoveries to the king in the Casa de Contratación. He was received warmly by the king, knighted and given a personal coat of arms, the first conquistador to ever receive such an honor. Documents were drawn up declaring him governor and adelantado of the islands of Florida and Bimini, and the king encouraged him to return and colonize his new discoveries. However, there was just one little job which the king wanted him to do before setting off for Florida. You see, the native Caribs of Guadeloupe had risen up and were raiding and harassing the Spanish and the king wanted them destroyed. Diego Colon had been effectual in this and besides he had quarreled with the king over revenues and was now being recalled for good. Ponce de Leon, the new royal favorite, was chosen to go and subjugate the ferocious Caribs, after which he planned to go and colonize his island of Florida. We will see how that played out in the next episode of From Settlement to Superpower. I'd like to close this episode with a note that I really do appreciate hearing all your feedback. Any feedback will be greatly appreciated. You can send me an email at fromsettlementtosuperpower at gmail.com or you can leave us a review on iTunes. Particular, by the way, if you are that fine person I met on a flight from Fort Lauderdale to Atlantic City on July 15th, I would greatly appreciate to hear from you and how you're enjoying the podcast. In any event, for all the rest of you, I can't wait to see you next episode on From Settlement to Superpower.